Hello and welcome to the 4 O'Clock Podcast with me, Richard Goff. On this edition of the 4 O'Clock Podcast, we're in conversation with photographer and storyteller Gabrielle Mottola. I first met Gabrielle in 2006 when she was taking street portraits in East London's Broadway market for her project, London E84PH. Gabrielle, welcome to the 4 O'Clock Podcast. Thank you, Richard. It's nice to be here. And it's nice to have that connection, too. Wow, 2006. That feels like a lifetime ago. I can hardly Yeah, I, I remember walking into the market on a Saturday morning, and I, at the time, was doing an online photo essay course. So I was in the market uh, to practice taking photographs and portraits of strangers. And at that time, there was, of course, the big story about... Tony losing his cafe and the protests about the gentrification of Broadway Market. And it seems a million miles away. But I remember your setup on the corner of one of the streets on the market, just um, at the venue off Broadway. And you had a, a really classic uh, Hassenblad film camera and uh, some flash. And you'd set up almost like a street portrait to take your photographs. You were kind enough to photograph me. Uh, and I took a photograph of you, and I can't find either of those photographs. I've been very poor in my photography management. But uh, that was one of your first major projects, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, I think uh, it would have been it would have been one of my first major local ones where I started to really get interested in the in the in the area that I was in and wanting to interact with it and wanting to document the way that it was changing. Um, even though it's a million miles away, it just seems like what happened in Broadway Market is just, you know, it just keeps happening and it keeps happening and it keeps happening. And that is the way that this particular iteration of our world commercially is going. Uh, but I would say, I think in 2005, I'd gone to Brazil and and, and photographed sidelines and, and looked at the carnival from behind the scenes and kind of all of the adjunct things that go on during carnival in brazil aside from the big main parade which is actually for a lot of people too expensive to go to um uh, so i guess broadway market was the first time i started to i think i was heavily influenced by this british idea of series which i don't naturally gravitate towards i have to say i don't have such specific intentions in mind a lot of the work i do is an exploration and connection um and it makes sense in retrospect so I was, I suppose it was the first time I was like, yes, I have an idea and I'm going to go out into the market and I'm going to literally photograph as many people as will stop for me and try to get um, a, a, through lots of different pictures, a picture of what and who, like who was in the market at that time and how it was changing. It, um, it was a unique uh, environment, 2006 moving towards uh, 2007-2008, there was a huge gentrification taking place and we were starting to see more market stores appear at the Saturday market and different types of people move into the area. And through my photo essay work, I was observing, you know, this dissatisfaction from the locals, which I totally supported and agreed. It was an area that was changing and, I was looking at the portrait you captured again yesterday in preparation for today's podcast. And, and it's such a, a good range of the local characters. And I actually started to recognize some of them. So it was a really interesting trip down memory lane for me. I think that's the beauty of storytelling. 
Yeah, I mean, photography for me is a way of reminding myself of parts of my life. It's a way of affirming. It's like a diary in a way, especially the, the street portraiture. Um, but it, it 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 was then too a way to kind of connect. It was a way to connect with people, but also allow people to to connect with me and and with each other, because one of the biggest complaints, aside from the hike of rent and you know the the fact that it got harder to materialistically live in the market, was the change in uh, etiquette and and just uh, openness of new people coming into the market and not being open or talkative um, in any way. Whereas Prior to that, you couldn't really get down the street without stopping for four or five different conversations. And it had this just very lovely village feel to it. Um, and I think that the disconnection was what was one of the hardest aspects of the change that happened there to take aside from obviously the fact that kids could not afford to move out into the area to be near their parents, um, people who were born there, people who lived there for years and and refurbished it from a you know a derelict dump because it was once a thriving market in the 80s and then it, it obviously the, the crash came and it went under again and um, there was this this piece of art um, this photograph hanging in off Broadway which was a gallery at the time um, by Stuart um, I'm blanking on his last name which I'm ashamed to say but Broadway market is a submarine not as is not a sinking ship it's a submarine. Um, I remember that piece, a piece of, of graffiti on the wall. In fact, my friend Emma has that canvas print that Stephen Selby made and sold um, in her flat. And I saw it recently. I have a piece of their work from that gallery in my flat. It's, uh, it, it's a, a, a mounted photograph of the last number 38 route master bus. I remember that one leaving. Yeah. That, that's in my flat. And, and he was, I remember talking to him on a few occasions uh, and, Steven. He's just yeah, he's just so interesting. And oh yeah, Stephen's character. You, you, you can't miss him the way he dresses and moves around. Yes, it it, it was a, it was a great time. I think one of your biggest projects moving on from Broadway was when you headed out and spent time in Iceland. That was I would say that was my first major project. Yeah, where it was a real uh, it, it matured. I find it difficult to do these. Um, you know, it, it takes a lot to sort of have everything come together and, 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 and want to say something and then to, you know, feel it out and research it and then produce it. So yeah, the Iceland project in 2013 was the first big one. And there was a big gap between, um, I think there was the E84PH, then I did the story on Philip Shield and his father, his stepfather, Ian Davies, uh, with the honey that they were producing in Hackney. Is that the bees on the roof yeah. story? Yes, yeah, I remember I, that, yeah. For me, it was a story about, it was beginning as a story about Philip, really. It was a story about autism and a story about connecting to somebody who thinks differently. And Ian just knew that Philip would be able to relate to these insects, you know, these bees, because he was so fascinated at the time with insects and Philip and, and Ian used to keep bees. But I didn't know, how, I didn't have the visual vocabulary or the the ability to say that. And so when I decided out of a need to make money to call up the Guardian, because I knew it was a great story and, and offer it to them, they took it down the road. They wanted to take it down, sent a writer and did their thing and used the photographs that I made. And that was really a hard thing for me to experience in in a way, it was really good for Philip because he kind of went from being this kid at school that everyone thought was weird to being in the paper and having a lord hold up the article that morning in um, in 
session and say, we need more young people like Philip Shield. And so it was it was an amazing thing in some ways. But then, of course, the everybody, it's like Instagram, people see a picture and they want to go and make that picture. So everybody wanted to go and tell Philip's story. So their family was inundated with calls about, you know, people coming to photograph him. And I just kind of stepped back and it was a lesson. So I, I didn't, um, a lot of things happened in my life and I didn't really do very much in terms of you know, projects, I sort of just survived. And then, you know, slowly built back up. I had, um, you know, I had a period of very being on very unwell and going through the, the NHS mental health system, which is not great. I love the NHS. I really do. But most mental health care systems in the world, in the Western world are, um, have a, you know, they can be good in acute situations and in crises, but they really, I think, made me worse. And so I went through a real journey. And An Equal Difference was the first project I did coming out of that period. Um, and again, it started like it wasn't, it was like, I'm going to go to Iceland and I want to talk to people there because I want to understand why I keep reading about all of this equality that supposedly exists there and why is it that they are, you know, they're on more, you know, green primary power than anywhere else. Of course, they're, they're situated in a very formidable position in the globe. So, you know, a lot of this has to do with with that, especially with the green um, energy. Um, but I just needed to see it for myself. I was reading things in the paper and I wasn't getting a clear picture so I, um, I had had a connection to it. And uh, through a friend, I knew somebody who was going to Iceland frequently, and I was hearing about it from them, too. So I asked if they could put me in touch with somebody to talk about this project with, and they did. And it just, it just, you know, lit up like wildfire. It went from there. It went from 26 portraits to 56 portraits to 156, you know, portraits. And just I just kept going back and photographing and talking to more people. And it, it just... It organically over two years became clear to me that I needed to put this all in one area in a book and share it. So I, I had to write it too, because the photographs weren't enough to tell the story. And, um, and so yeah, it came out as a book, which I independently published in 2016. I did try to take it to publishers, but um, I was kind of getting the, you know, the standard rejections, but also getting, you know, people saying things like, well, why don't you take it to a, one of those women's presses, or, you know, they thought it was a women's issue equality, um, which was shocking. And, um, you know, I just thought I could spend my time trying to get this published. But what's really important is that I want to share this. And what would have been good to have it with the publishers, obviously, it would have probably gotten a wider um, birth, you know, it would have gotten more uh, publicity. But the importance for me at the time was it was a burning desire to just get it down and out and get it out there. How did you deal with the writing aspect uh, for the book? Was it something you'd done before uh, from a previous experience or was it something you had to learn as part of the delivery of that book? It was, um, it, it, it's like most people, you know, we write in school and we write essays and a lot of us agonize about it. And you know that feeling of like the Sunday night blues where the, the, the homework's due on Monday and you haven't done it? Well, it was like nine months of that feeling um, kind of building it, because I had to, I had written, obviously, you know, through my education, um, I'd gone to university and there's a lot more writing required, free writing required in university. There's a lot of scantrons, as we call them in high school in um, in the United States, like multiple choice essay, not essays, but multiple choice testing, not a lot of written testing of essays, the way that maybe it's more so here um, and, and becoming less so from what I understand, which is a tragedy. 
But um, I had to figure out how to write a book. And I had been journaling since I've been journaling since I was 18, writing kind of stream of consciousness. I did The Artist's Way several times, which is a great book by Julia Cameron, which is a process for people to go through to kind of get in touch with that creative part of themselves. And so I, I, I journaled a lot during the photographs, um, making the photographs, and I would write after the sessions and I kept it all stored. I was using this program called Scrivener, which I found was a really good uh, program to be able to like sort and store documents. Um, and I would just keep notes on everything. And, and when I would get inspired, I would write. And it was just this huge, like moving mass of stuff. And then I decided that I was going to write the book and I found a place in Iceland in, in the summer cabin area where it's unpopulated during the winter. So I thought, you know, that'll be more economical. I can afford to rent a house there. So I found one um, and I rented it out for nine months and I, I wrote, I finished photographing. I needed to, you know, I needed to photograph a lot more men for the project because I had originally just started photographing at the beginning women because I was more curious. I related, you know, more to that story. But as, of course, my journey, you know, extended, I, I became a better, uh, more aware feminist. Because if you're not talking about everybody when you're talking about feminism, you're not talking about feminism. Um, and so I was doing that. And I found a company through uh, a trip I'd taken to, uh, to Ireland to do a keynote speech for a, a women's business conference in March of 2016. I found this, um, just through talking to the people that I was staying with, I found this independent um, organization, this company in Ireland that helps independent authors publish um, called Kazoo Publishing. And I got in touch with them and I hired them to to help me through the editing of the book, the, the text. My editor, Robert Duran, was really, really helpful. Um, and the designing of the book. And then they they handled the interface with the printers and the production of it. And I got on with writing and I decided that I would write 2000 words a day, no matter what. Once I was into the actual writing in the book and I was no longer just journaling and taking notes, I would have to formulate the book and I would have to figure out the order that it went in. So I just had a routine. I'd get up at six in the morning, go out to the hot tub that was on the porch because almost every summer home in Iceland has a hot tub. It's just a thing. Um, I'd have my coffee. I It, it was still dark. It was winter. Um, you know, and I'd, uh, it was winter up until pretty much the end of March, April. And, um, and I would uh, get up breakfast, write, um, go out, exercise, come back, lunch, relax a bit, write. And I just, you know, have maybe another hot tub, (laughs) go go to the pool for a swim, come back dinner. And I was alone a lot. Um, It it sounds like you were preparing to be in self-isolation for the current pandemic. (laughs) The only it sounds like you were alone. Well, the the difference, the major difference, and this is something I'm really struggling with lately, is that I had the ability to connect to people when I wanted to. I could go into Selfos and I could sit in a cafe and order a meal and talk to the waitresses and talk to the people in the pools. And I could drive I could drive across the mountain into Reykjavik and see my friends and spend the weekend in in the city the city, haha, <laughs> the, the, the village masquerading as a nation. Um, and I could, uh, you know, I could, I had connection, I could make connection, physical connection with people when I needed to. And I don't think any of us are equipped to deal with this pandemic. And we're not, we're not being helped by the lack of leadership that our 
you know, that the people that are supposed to at least be saying, hey, we, we don't have all the information either. But this is like with all the information we do have, this is the best. This is what we think to the best of our ability. You know, we're not hearing that. And it's we're not equipped. So in a way, I, I suppose what I did learn in those nine months was how to connect to myself, how to spend time alone. But I don't I, I did not prepare for how to spend time alone without the ability to just go and connect to people. And so when I could it's one of the things I miss the most is being able to have a conversation with a stranger. Mm. It, it drives my partner nuts, but I love just talking to someone. And and it is always surprised me. Kind of in five minutes, if they think you're most if if they do think you're genuine, you, you'll have everything about their life shared with you. And then you might get a photograph as well. It, it It's one of the things that I've always enjoyed being able to do. Yeah, I, it makes your world bigger. It, it reminds you that the world isn't small. It is and it isn't. For me, it just it's a it's an act in faith, uh, an act of faith in humanity and, and trust in myself to be able to go out on the street and just talk to anybody I want. That feeling is, you know, it's... um. It's, I, it feel, that's the feeling of being alive um, for me. And so I couldn't do that, obviously. Like you say, um, we started podcasting probably around the same time. I'm on episode six of Stranger Curiosity. I just released it Wednesday. And I'm also approaching people through social media, mostly people I know at the moment, because there's a long list of incredible people I know that I really would love to share some of the kinds of conversations that we have in our lives with other people, because I think that there is a way of communicating that we all crave, but we are, in my last podcast, like as, as Megapolis said, we're all, you know, as adults, we're taught to front and pretend and hide our feelings and our emotions. And so it's nice to listen to people just having a, a an unguarded conversation. I, I do totally agree. I think we're on a very similar uh, uh, path. And I think it's probably this love of street portraits and street photography because you just want that connection with someone to, um, uh, I, I sit in the camp where I would rather take a street photograph with a connection than just an, an observational one and then never talk to the person. Although I will, would have done that, uh, over the years. Um, but, uh, especially living in East London, uh, do you still live in East London? I wish. Oh, um, where, where where do we find you on this podcast? You find me in Shepherd's Bush, which is a very different place. Um, Gosh, yes. And um, when I came back, I'm, I'm, I eventually, I, after the book was published, I stayed in Iceland for two years and I lived there. Um, wasn't the plan. It's just what happened. And when I decided to come back to London, the rents in East London were so hideous. I thought, wow, I'm really not going to spend all of my time working to pay my rent. That's exactly the situation I needed, you know, I need to get out of because the more time I spend working to pay my rent, like commercially, the less time I have to explore and express and do things of connection and things that have meaning. I haven't yet, you know, I haven't yet stepped into, um, I'm on, I'm on the, path, but it's a long one to be able to make a living from the work that you make. Um, it's a privilege and an honor, and it's not something, it's something I've been struggling towards for, you know, since I graduated university in 1997. So uh, yeah, you find me in Shepherd's Bush, which is actually funny enough, I have 
maybe just as many friends who live in Shepherd's Bush as I did in in in, in uh, East London. In fact, I have more in close proximity to me, so it's bizarre. But you know, I'm going to East London today to visit my my best friends who I'm in a bubble with, which has really made a difference to this lockdown or this pandemic situation. Um, but uh, you know, I go back and I my heart aches. I never wanted to leave Broadway Market, but I lived in a flat that was rented and my very lovely landlord sold. Um, and I moved and then I moved again and then I moved into a place in Clap Clapton. Um, and, uh, you know, I was there for eight years in Clapton and I only left that flat because I went to Iceland and I, I didn't want to maintain it. And also I was evicted because I called the health authorities on them because there was so much mold growing in the flat. It was literally falling apart. And they, of course, have since leveled it. It no longer exists and built like brand new affordable housing, uh, affordable to whom I don't know. But, you know, so here I am in Shepherd's Bush in a really lovely house of a friend's. Uh, and it's, a uh, you know, it's a midway situation until I can afford, if ever, to buy a place, you know, because I'm tired of renting. So that's actually a, a good segue into the current situation for so many working professionals like yourself, I am fortunate enough to work in information technology. So being able to work from home has been a complete gift. And I know that I'm in a very fortunate position. But uh, my partner has to make a living by being in front of people teaching. So, so we, I kind of seen it from both sides at home. But as a commercial photographer, it, it must have flipped your world. And how do you plan now to move forward. I mean, I, uh, yeah, I mean, all of my income went away. I was scheduled to go away to Germany to teach. I was scheduled to go to New York to set up like a, a whole portrait, uh, like do a portrait documentation photo booth at a festival. I was, um, I had commissions. I, you know, I had plans to approach other artists to go on tour with them, to be able to make the kind of work I made with Amanda Palmer. All of it just went away in like a matter of days. And I luckily, thank God, still had my Patreon, which I started last September, which is a membership platform um, where creators can go and share whatever it is they want to share with people and people can choose to pay up from a dollar up to whatever they're called tiers. Um, and you get different rewards depending on the tier. And so I have that and I've been trying to build that uh, since September. And that has been steady income through the lockdown. Um, but I, you know, as far as being physically in a space to photograph and be commissioned, it feels like I know some photographers are starting to photograph again. Um, you know, they're doing grocery store campaigns or they're doing still life things or they're doing, you know, small shoots with one person and there's all these rules and regulations. Um, and what, from what I'm hearing, people aren't really taking it seriously that, you know, clients won't wear masks. Uh, they pull them down to talk, you know, so I'm not interfacing with that at the moment. I've been, definitely not treading water at all. I've started this podcast. I've been really, um, I've been reaching out to the community of photographers that I'm part of through the Association of Photography, um, connecting with them, uh, doing student portfolio reviews uh, for universities earlier, like before the students um, broke for the summer. Um, you know, doing, um, I've been hosting this thing called Lockdown Live, which has been, was every week, then every two weeks for the women's group F22 and, and the Association of Photographers. So I've been in some ways busier than ever and trying now to position myself and figure out commercially what I want to do next. Because I think the personal practice, I have that down. 
I feel like I have a good relationship with making work and being able to say, I'm going to do work about this subject now and I'm going to make a project and I'm going to go, I'm going to go toward it and see what happens. Um, what I need to do now is focus more on the commercial side of photography. And like you, actually, I was in, I was in a kind of information technology in 2005 and six, I was working as a consultant for the BBC and for Apple. I was a, a an editor and I picked up Final Cut Pro when it came out in like 98 or 99 and had been headhunted by Apple to become one of their first train, you know, one of their first trainers in the UK. And I was doing installations and training sessions and all sorts of stuff. And that was my living. And I could then, you know, afford to go to Brazil for three months and photograph. But for me, that was the worst Sunday night school blues I'd ever experienced was the, the point at which I would come back from the photography trip and have to go back to work the next day in White City strangely enough, right around the corner from where I'm living now. And in fact, this is the house I used to stay in when I had really late nights there. Because inevitably, you know, machines break, things happen. People call you at all hours. Of the night. There's no boundaries. People are freaking out. They need you to come in and fix something. You know, it doesn't matter if it's eight o'clock, 10 o'clock, it doesn't matter. Um, I didn't feel like my life was my own at all. I had like, you know, and so I, I stepped away from that 2005, 2006 and decided, no, and even if it meant, and it did mean taking a huge um, financial hit, I'm going to do this. I'm going to pursue photography. I need to, and in order to get good at it, you need to spend time doing it. I mean, you might look at my work and think, oh, like, gosh, it's so easy for her to look at that. But it's not. I've really, really worked at it and I've spent time. And, you know, as a photographer, you know that it's more failure than success. You know, you try and make a picture and it doesn't come out quite like you meant it. So you try again. And we're our own worst critics as well. You should be. I, yeah. I, 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 you have to on. be. If you can't, it was like a guy came up to me when I used to play bass and I used to play at the at the gallery at Off-Broadway in a band because uh, it was a venue at some point. Um, and I remember a guy coming up to me after a show saying, well, I really love your bass playing. It sounds really great. You know, I'm, I play bass, but I'm not, I'm not very good. I don't sound like that. And I said, well, if you can hear that, then... You can sound like that. It's if you couldn't hear that you weren't sounding good, then you'd be lost. So I think this frustration of kind of like seeing other people's work and seeing what you make and the two not lining up, it's dangerous to think that there's just a small step between them. It's a lot of work. And as my friend Jamie told me this story about a magician, when people would come up to him on the street and say, oh, my God, you know, I, I love your work. And he would say, no, 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 no. You love the results of my work. If you saw what I did, if you saw my work, you would hate it. That, that's actually really good. I could never want to try and make a living as a commercial photographer because I enjoy photography too much. And therefore I made a decision a long time ago. I will make money from something I am good at and can get away with most of the time. And I will enjoy my hobby. And, and just embrace it, take photographs, meet people, tell stories, but for my enjoyment. And if I do get some things published now and again, which I don't actively seek, but I have sometimes uh, during the Olympics in 2012, I got some really good images from around London because it was there in front of me all day long. Uh, and some of them you know, made it through to uh, awards with the Royal Photographic Society and it was nice, but I don't want to seek much more of it because you also then get the negative feedback as well as positive feedback. So what do you mean by negative feedback? I, so when your photograph is in the public domain, people can say 
that they don't like it. Fine. Consider the source, <laughs> I, though, always. Always consider who's I, saying it. Look at their feed, you know, because well, those who shout the loudest exactly. are usually those who don't try very hard. It's exactly what my partner said, you know. I'm used <laughs> so to taking criticism. I mean, true. I actually, I, I love constructive criticism coming from a good source. I, It's rare and precious. And I, you only ever really take on board what you resonate what resonates with you because people will always have opinions about your work, but maybe they don't get what you're doing and maybe what you're doing won't be coming into fashion for a very long time. Who knows if ever. And funny enough, the reason I want to be a commercial photographer or I have to be a commercial photographer is because precisely because I love it so much that I don't want to spend my time doing anything. I've done the thing where I have a living and I make a living at one thing. And then I have this hobby that I have and I have this split life for me, it always felt like I was living the wrong life. Like I needed to move into the hobby. The hobby wasn't a hobby. It was more than that. It was it was a passion. It was a, a necessity. So I felt, you know, in a way I feel, I feel envious of people who can, you know, who feel comfortable and happy being able to have a job that, that earns them enough money and then enjoy photography. For me, I feel driven and called and annoyed in a way by it. And if I could make a living just alone on the books I make, the prints I you know sell, Patreon. Um, I mean, I don't know that I would want to go and prostrate myself in front of the commercial world and try to get hired by an advertising agency to do a shoot that would probably pay for um, a bunch of projects, which is legitimate. And you know, a lot of photographers do that, and there's nothing wrong with it. But I don't know that I would, you know, I think if I could think, if I can figure out a business model and I'm working on it that works for me where the majority of what I make and how I live on, how I make a commercial, how I make a monetary living from my work sustains my work. I mean, that's the hat trick for me. That's the dream because then I can just continue to, you know, do what I think has value and, and put my time into what I believe we need more of in the world. And we don't need more sales of products we don't need. We need more connection. We need more, we need to be seen. We need more understanding. We need, you know, we need, we need to, you know, hold, you know, discourse in a public forum, which isn't about tearing each other down. It is about supporting each other and exploring what we don't understand and, and taking a step back maybe and withholding judgment. And I, believe me, if I saw, I mean, if there are brands out there, if there are companies out there that I can work for that promote that, and that's what I'm looking for, then I will put my chips in with them and I would never not take a commission. But you know what I mean? It's just like, what do you want to spend your time and energy on this earth doing? I, I totally agree with that. Time is short. So we're going to bring this podcast to an end shortly. I, I really enjoyed that conversation uh, about um, our well-being and the things that we need to learn from this current pandemic and actually about communicating and dealing with decency it is hugely important to me. On a final note, uh, before we come to an end of the four o'clock podcast, everyone's a photographer now, or so they tell us. The uh, change uh, of perception of photography with things like Instagram and all smartphones have got some very clever technology built into them. Has that had a personal impact on your approach to work or in the way maybe commercial work has come to you? Um, 
Yeah, I don't know about the come to me part, but I mean, I'm not, I don't, I, I, you know, I, I support the idea that anyone can be a photographer, but not everyone is. It's, you know, the ratatouille, you know, philosophy of, of life. Um, anybody with, you know, I, I differentiate between pictures and photographs. One has emotional content resonance, meaning, story, and transcends the objects thereof, and the other doesn't. Um, and definitely with the advent and the accessibility that has come with digital age and smartphones and cameras being really affordable, which I think is actually, it is a good thing. It's flooded the market with lots of people that, you know, either will, will work for free or nothing just to get a photograph of theirs published because that's in and of itself that feeds some part of them. <laughs> you know, maybe they don't need to eat like they were, they already have enough money. I mean, there's people that can afford to buy hundreds of thousands of pounds of equipment and shoot, you know, sports events for free. And certainly that impacts a market. You know, we are, it is very difficult to make a living as a photographer. It always was a challenge, but it's become increasingly more difficult. But I think that there is uh, such a glut of content. It's almost like when you find, when I find somebody's work in the middle of this, like, like desert of billions of grains of sand, it's an oasis of calm and connection. And I spend time looking and taking in what they're saying and seeing and feeling what they do. And that is beautiful. And that is still, you know, I mean, we'll get with the accessibility, um, making it, and it needs to be made even more accessible. Um, we will get a different range of voices coming forward. And that's exciting. Um, you know, the whole, the whole thing of uh, everybody. I mean, I think photography is such an enjoyable, um, medium to, 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 to play in you know, not even forget the work, but to play in that it's, it's wonderful that so many people love it. And in a way, I think because so many people have access to it and love it and know how difficult it is, there will, you know, hopefully there's even more appreciation for great photography. Um, I don't know. I, Does that make sense? It, it makes complete sense. And I totally um, get what you're saying for me photography is just pure joy and i will continue to do it until i can't and me too <laughs> yeah <laughs> even I, though it's, it's, for me it's, it's work sometimes i don't want to yeah, do it but i do it it's a habit absolutely but uh, being able to tell stories uh, i just never want that to leave me gabrielle thank you for joining the four o'clock podcast it was brilliant to catch up with you and i wish you well in your future endeavors. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me. It was a pleasure to be here. All of the uh, photographs that we've discussed from Gabrielle and her website will be in the four o'clock podcast show notes, which you can access at four o'clockpodcast.com. Thank you for listening to this edition of the four o'clock podcast with me. Richard Goff. Until we listen together again, goodbye.